Welcome to the Due Diligence Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. And for more than 10 years with SNN, I've been doing interviews with microcap management teams at investor conferences globally, as well as online. Our SNN Live CEO video interviews are meant to pique interest, and then one can discover more by going to that company website. But personally, I always have more questions I want to ask. On this show, I'll be chatting with public company executives from microcap companies, and we'll dive deeper into companies that are rarely profiled. Microcap traditionally is overlooked, unloved, and absolutely never featured on legacy financial media outlets unless something material is going on that's a good story. With my experience interviewing management teams, having interviewed most of them before, I've built up a network of companies, so there will be no shortage of content. Furthermore, this is an opportunity for me to showcase some of the qualitative lessons I've learned from guests on the Planet Microcap podcast. You can expect high quality interviews with management teams that may have exposure to broader macro trends that you may never have thought of. One of the many reasons why I love the microcap space. So if you love microcaps and especially love learning about companies before the professionals do, let's start our due diligence. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party product services or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast. My guest on the show today is Dr. Michael Levy, CEO of Lightwave Logic Inc. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is LWLG on NASDAQ. Lightwave Logic Inc. is developing a platform leveraging its proprietary engineered electro-optic polymers to transmit data at higher speeds with less power. The company's High activity and high stability organic polymers allow Lightwave Logic to create next generation photonic EO devices, which convert data from electrical signals into optical signals for applications in data communications and telecommunications markets. I interviewed Dr. Levy in April 2020 in a short CEO interview that's available on our YouTube channel when the company was still listed on the OTCQB and still a microcap. Fast forward to just over two years later, and Lightwave is now listed on NASDAQ with a market cap over a billion. I invited Dr. Levy on to make sense of the company's rapid growth, as well as what makes electro-optic polymers technology unique and different compared to the legacy technology Lightwave is looking to replace, the company's business strategy to capitalize on the momentum of the last couple of years, and where Dr. Levy envisions the company in the next three to five years. With that, Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Michael Levy, CEO of Lightwave Logic, Inc. Welcome back to the Due Diligence Podcast. My name is Robert Kraft, your host here on the show. And I'd like to introduce my next guest. It is Dr. Michael Levy, the CEO of Lightwave Logic. It's a publicly traded company. The symbol is LWLG on NASDAQ. Dr. Levy, thank you for joining me today. How are you doing? Great to be here. Good to see you again. It's been a it's been a minute. A lot's uh, a lot's changed <laughs> since the last time we chatted. I think it was uh, early 2020, and uh, one of the big things that happened, and I'm sure you're going to get into this at some point, is we did do an organic uplist from the OTCs to Nasdaq in September last year. And when I say an organic uplist, I mean we didn't actually do any reverse split. We didn't raise any money. And as far as I can tell, that's extremely rare. And uh, that was on the 1st of September. And then NASDAQ invited us to go close the market on the 10th. And that's that day when I started doing things like this. And people wonder what I'm actually doing with this. It's lightweight logic. I mean, it's not like the Hawaii thing of hanging loose. It's lightweight logic. And everywhere I go, I see this sign come up everywhere. It's sort of amazing. You see, especially in Hawaii, you'll see that sign come up everywhere for sure. <laughs> I mean, it's not going to be as intense. It might be more like this, but, you know, it's there for sure. Um, but, you know, listen, we're going to get into all that. Like you said, we did an interview. We published that on April 10, 2020, back when you were on the QB, OTC QB. Um, and yeah, I'm glad you brought up the difference in a, an organic uplist because uh, that I was literally being like, what? 
what do you mean? So I appreciate that. But before we get into everything, all the change and all that kind of stuff, let's, we should give people a little bit of a history lesson and understanding of who Lightwave is, what you guys do, how you got to where you're at. So, you know, my first question that I ask everybody on here is what would you say is that one line that best describes Lightwave logic? Well, what we do is we use unique polymer materials to design devices called modulators. And modulators switch light really fast. They're used on the internet and they enable the internet to go much faster in terms of sending data much faster. Very good. All right, so let's get into some of the history of the company. You know, when did the company start and what would you say was the original problem that Lightwave was looking to solve? So the company started uh, long before I got there. I got there in 2015 as a member of the board. Uh, the original founders um, came out of DuPont. So the company was uh, started in Delaware to be a chemistry company that uh, was going to specialize in what is known as electro-optic polymers. So what's an electro-optic polymer? It sounds really complicated. I mean, it's basically a material that's organic that you can apply a bias or a voltage, just like the terminals of a battery. So you can put a field across it. But with these types of polymers, if you put the field across it, you can switch light. And in fact, you know, the, the, the most popular comparison I can make is think about liquid crystal displays. You know, we also used to watch liquid crystal display TVs and displays on the mobile phones. Well, liquid crystal is a liquid that's between two glass plates. And the glass plates have an electrode and you can apply a voltage. You apply a voltage across the liquid crystal and you can change the light conditions. You can change the polarization. Now, ours is solid, not liquid, but it's polymer. So it's that concept. And the big difference is not only is it solid, is that we switch light, if not a thousand, actually a million times faster than liquid crystal. So you have to think about what could you use with those types of properties. And so the company back in the early sort of 2000s, the mid 2000s, was developing electro-optic polymers to switch really fast, um, have good robustness and reliability, and to have low power. And that's what the company was really started on. Right. And because, I mean, yeah, the internet was around at the time, but I mean, e even at that time when the polymers were developed, was there that thought that there could be an application there to help with internet traffic jams, like what we talked about in April, 2020? There was, there was. And in fact, some of our original investors looked at Lightwave Logic as being the, the optical computing company. Um, but as you, as you know today, I mean, optical computing is still something that is still being developed. A lot of, uh, a lot of big companies have shop programs, but it's not there yet. But when I joined the company in 2015, everybody knew my device background. And that means I know how to design devices, especially in semiconductors and things like polymers. And so if you apply our material into a device, then you can make a device called a modulator. And a modulator is, is a, a component that's used on the internet that actually regulates and speeds the traffic. So let me just explain. Um, you take the chemistry of the EO polymers, electro-optic polymers, and you put them into a device. Now, if you can just imagine this, my hand here, and let's assume my hand is a laser, and a laser sends out light. Light goes into the fiber optics. The fiber optics are glass fibers that are spread all over the country in the optical network. We call it the internet. It's a bit like looking at the interstate freeway system, if you like. And so they connect all cities and towns and houses and things. But as the light goes out of the laser, in order to create the ones and zeros, so let's just block the light. Well, let's just assume that's a zero and you take your hand away and you get a one. Now, semiconductors, modulator semiconductors do it like this. So they have a certain speed. And we've reached the speed capacity of these semiconductor modulators. And if you use polymers, real simply, you can do this. I can't make my hand go a thousand times faster, but you get the principle. And so the use of the polymer material really allows the data rates to be sped up on the internet. And so that means you can do simple things. What's the simple way to understand what I'm saying? We've all done videos, right? We're doing a video today, and we've done a lot of them over the pandemic of the last two years. 
And, you know, when my children are on the video platform or my wife's on a video platform, then sometimes you have to send the camera off because the signal's not that good. And so to preserve the data, because we're not getting enough bandwidth into the home. Well, if you have higher data rates and you get more bandwidth, you won't need to do that. So the simple way of looking at what we do is, is that we can add value to people's lives by actually having the internet go faster. Very good. And we're going we're gonna to dig into that, the, the, that a little bit further too, because I want to know like in practice how that actually works, you know, the business model and all that stuff. But before I get there, I have to ask you, you know, you mentioned a couple of times that you came into the company in 2015, you know, what, what were your initial thoughts about the business and what are some of the things that ended up being totally false when, when you started digging your teeth in? So when I came into the business, um, people had made polymer modulators before, but they hadn't been successful. And so the job I had to do is to really look at the chemistry team and say, what do we need to do to really have a positive impact on the optical internet, um, the optical networking? And so we actually had at that time in um, 2016, 2017, we had two facilities. We had one in Delaware doing the chemistry. And we had one in Colorado doing the device design. Well, you can just imagine um, if the chemists are not really talking every day to the device designers, then they're not going to really understand what's needed in the chemistry. So the first thing we did was we put the two labs together, and now we have a nice, uh, fairly sizable facility in Englewood, which is at the tech center in Denver, just south of the Denver. And now we have our chemists talk to the device folks and the device folks talk to the chemists on a daily basis. So what does that do from the team standpoint? It means that the device guys know exactly what's coming through from the chemists and how they formulate the polymers and vice versa. And what that does is that means you can be much more efficient in designing the right performance of these modulators. And I think that's one of the sort of little secrets that we've done, that we've implemented over the last few years that's really impacted the company. All right, so now let's dig into the business itself. You know, tell us what, what is the revenue model? You know, how, just how does it work? You know, I mean, listen, I'll, I'll be honest, I'm very ignorant <laughs> when it comes to polymer modulators and the, op, the way in which optical systems work. Um, so how does, how does the company make money? Yeah, no, no, that's, that's uh, cool. Let me, um, let me just preface that with saying, you know, 20 years ago when we had the big internet bubble, I mean, there was a lot of optical component companies and they did really well and, um, you know, they got acquired or they went public and, and some of them are still around. But you look at that model today, that's the horizontal model. The, the customers have changed. Um, business models need to change. And so when I looked at the situation in 2015, 2016, um, I didn't see that model being super successful, i.e. we take our electro-optic polymers and we turn them into devices and we put them into some type of package and then we sell the package as a component and we sell it to the customers. I think that <clears throat> that model is still uh, present and we still can play that model and it's still part of our business plan. But it also means that we can't just rely on that. So what we've done is, is we've created a business model with three prongs. And um, I looked at the patent portfolio. We have an extremely strong patent portfolio. And with that, we are now in a position to license our technology as well as tech transfer our technology to founders. And so those other two prongs allow us the business model flexibility to work with any type of customer. Now, a lot of the customers, and I'm sure we're going to get into this, are vertically integrated. And what does that mean? That means if you look at some of the people that implement all the components and the modules and the systems and the networks as part of the internet, they do their own device design, they do their own packaging, they do their own modules, they do their own subsystems, they do their own system racks, routers, switches, and things. And so they have a lot of techies like myself, and they know exactly what their weaknesses are. And so you have to be, as a company, flexible enough to work with them. And some of them will want you to work with them directly, and other ones want you to go to their OEMs 
the original equipment manufacturers or their contract manufacturers, their CMs, or even their foundries where they get their chips. And so just selling components is an approach that worked 20 years ago. I don't believe in this approach that's going to be successful today. So we have the licensing tech transfer approach. Absolutely. Yeah, because really what I'm running to get the crux at is, you know, there's the narrative of lightwave logic, which is, you know, increasing internet speeds and, you know, getting and versus like, okay, now what does that all mean? Let's, let's dig in. So we're, so on that, on that point, I mean, where is the company currently at then when it comes to, you know, licensing and working with various, uh, you know, potential customer bases, you know, where, where are we at right now? So we, we've given guidance. We've, get, uh, we've had customer feedback from our technology and you know, we've seen our technology far exceed uh, what semiconductor modulators do today. And uh, I mean, I've been on record just this week saying that semiconductor modulators have reached a saturation point. I mean, it's looking like it's a sunset business for that type of technology. We're in a polymer technology for modulators and that looks like a sunrise business because our modulators, I mean, at least from the feedback we're getting is that they work at least three times faster than what's out there today in semiconductors and much, much lower power, order of magnitude, lower power. This is really exciting. And so, yes, we're seeing that type of feedback. Uh, we haven't given any guidance into naming uh, the people we're working with, our partners. Um, so, We've been very careful on that front. But I think the big thing that folks have noticed over the last year, especially as there's been, uh, there's been a lot of interest in the company, is our strategy of working with silicon foundries. And uh, because before May 2021, just over a year ago, we didn't really mention anything about foundries. And so, but let me explain. Foundries are these big silicon fabs that are, positioned geographically all over the place. And they're in the business to run silicon wafers, big silicon wafers and lots of them, because the more wafers they run, the more happier they are, because that's their business. We have a little fab in Englewood, Colorado, 1,500 square feet. You know, it's a fair-sized fab for doing prototyping and initial work. But if we want our technology to be ubiquitous, we want it everywhere, just like polymers that you find in OLEDs. Everybody's heard the term OLED, right? It stands for organic LED or organic light emitting display. We're probably even looking at one right now, right? It's on our mobile phones, it's on our screens, our TVs. Well, 20 years ago, when I first started working with OLEDs, back in when I was doing research at Motorola, I think it was like 91, 92. I mean, I couldn't get blue to last more than an hour, let alone you know, the, the red and the green, right? And so then we looked at the reliability and it was like, I don't know how this technology is going to survive. I mean, I don't know how it's going to be commercialized. And you look 20 years on and it's everywhere. I mean, it just performs brilliantly. In fact, it superseded a lot of liquid crystal displays. And so we have polymers too. You know, our polymers don't send out lights, but they switch light. So it's a different formulation. And so... Why can't we have our technology be just as ubiquitous as OLEDs? There's no reason not to. And so utilizing foundries, just like we said back in May last year, is one way where we can scale to volume quickly and efficiently. It's got the mass commercialization in place. It just means we have to port our technology, our process technology, uh, what the fabs call it is their PDK, which is their process development kit. Um, to those folks who like cooking in the kitchen, it's your recipe. That's all it is. It's your recipe of how you compose your, your evening meal, if you like. But just think about it. When you're doing your recipes, you cook your recipe one way and somebody else comes in and does the recipe in a different kitchen, that same recipe, it's probably going to look different, right? I mean, so you've got to be really careful about the equipment you use, how you get it transferred to a foundry. And we're going through that process right now. And um, as I indicated a few weeks ago, we're working with a number of foundries. And because we don't just want one foundry to utilize this technology, we want it to go everywhere. So then it, 
<clears throat> using this strategy with going with foundries, again, I'm not the tech person. So anybody watching this, I apologize. I do not have the high tech background that, uh, that hopefully you don't assume that I do. But, you know, in going to the foundries and working with them, why is that the strategy that gets the company to scale? Because it costs so much money. I mean, it's, it's, it's a foundry can cost a billion to $5 billion. And a cheap foundry is half a billion dollars. And so do we want to raise capital, be a capital-intensive company just to do that when there are facilities already out there that can take our process recipe and just use it on their toolkit and run it in volume, in scale? Um, doesn't make a lot of sense. And so from our standpoint, yes, we got to the NASDAQ, and yes, we do have the financial resources in place to scale the company. But you know, we can scale the chemistry. We've got a huge chemistry lab in, in, in Englewood in Colorado, and we can scale the production of our chemistry. But when it comes to wafers, yeah, that's a different kettle of fish. Um, why should we build a big fab when there's already 10, 20, 30, 40 already out there looking for business? That is exactly what we have. And our process recipes don't require any new tooling. So it's just a matter of transferring or porting the process to the foundries. And so, yeah, it's, it's a capital efficient play. And I think in today's environment, you, you've got to be sensitive to that. For sure. But at the same time, I mean, is, is it more of like, all right, at the same time, yeah, it's more capital efficient, but it's also kind of proof of concept so that once you get it out there and you're now working with all these different foundries, you know, let's say once you get to the point where you're free cash, it's like, okay, well, do we explore doing it ourselves. I'm just trying to understand why, why, oh. why you, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, no, no. You're, you're, you have a good point. I mean, having the foundries run the wafers makes, makes a lot of economic sense because the foundries are never going to make the polymers because if you like, that's the Coca-Cola strategy that we have. We're not going to give our secret recipes out. So our chemists have unique control of our material, our polymer material. And so, but, the foundries are going to utilize that material because it comes in liquid form. You can spin it onto a wafer. You can drop it onto a wafer. And so you can use standard spinners in foundries. There's no new equipment here. And so it just makes a lot of sense to let these guys take our technology, add it to their portfolio, and they may even improve their business model. So we can tech transfer to them and license the rights that they, they could um add it to their recipe kits. And so I think if you want to get a technology that, to become ubiquitous, you can't just keep everything to yourself and try and do everything yourself. Now, some things we're going to do ourselves, and that's the, the, you know, the Coca-Cola part of it. We're going to keep the recipes, and that's top secret, and you know we've, we've got intellectual property there and trade secrets, and so just like any other company. But... Raising tens, hundred millions of dollars for a fab doesn't make a lot of sense. So that's why we're going that route. What does the competitive landscape look like? I mean, are there others that are kind of seeing what Lightwave is doing, especially, you know, where, you know, the, it, the company has gotten a lot more awareness probably in the last year or so. So they see that, all right, there is there an opportunity here to do things similar to how they're doing it? So love to learn a little more there. Yeah, no, there's a couple of areas to, to focus in on in the competitive landscape. One is that if you look across the internet today, you have semiconductor modulators. I've already indicated I, I'm looking at that as a sunset business. And so, yes, we have competition in terms of an incumbent technology made out of semiconductors called semiconductor modulators. The materials are silicon, indium phosphide. We've uh, seen indium uh, lithium nibate, sorry, so three main materials. Um, we feel that our technology is faster, higher data rates, much lower power, and certainly um, as a small size component to it, which is really important. And so we see our technology as being much more competitive to the incumbent technology. And when an incumbent technology is sunsetting, then that's a really good opportunity to create a new business and, and really ramp that business. So that's one part of the story. And I, the next part of the story is you're absolutely right. When you are exposed on the NASDAQ and we're doing a lot of PRs, 
and we're getting a lot of interest in the company. We've got a lot of loyal shareholders that really support the company. Then other people are beginning to ask the question, uh, what's with this electro-optic polymers? You know, why is this lightwave logic, you know, creating all this hoopla here? Well, because it performs really well. And what we have seen is we have seen other universities and other folks actually take an interest in electro-optic polymers as well. And so we're not the only players in town. Um, I think we're way ahead of the competition, but we're actually seeing other folks take a, a very serious interest in this. And, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I think you should expect this because if your technology is in the right place at the right time, with the right vector, then other people are going to get envious. And uh, I certainly uh, see that. Absolutely. So I got another dumb question for you. But I like I, I ask them I ask them fairly often, so I, I got hopefully this isn't too dumb. But you know, we're, one one of the mainstream arguments when it comes to um, you know high tech is sometimes that it requires more energy consumption. Tell me a little bit about how your technology either helps solve some of those potential concerns or how, what, what, just what's happening in terms of that? Cause you know, I'm sure you get those types of ESG questions all the time. Yeah. Energy consumption is a huge Achilles heel for like the data center type guys. Anybody has lots of racks and racks of switches and routers and things. I mean, you ask them what their key problem is. It's like, well, we don't know how to get the power consumption down. We're looking for all different ways, different architectures, different technologies, different techniques, different solutions. And it's a big problem. And, and the problem is not going away. You can look at a lot of the graphs uh, and it points to increasing power consumption when the data rates and the traffic levels are going up. And so what we have is a technology that can operate with very low voltage. And so we can have very fast modulator speeds that do this type of thing at super low voltages, which means we save a lot of power. And in fact, we was at a major conference back in March this year. It was the Optical Fiber Conference. So for the techies in the audience, that's called OFC. That's uh, like the global conference when all the, the folks that have the technologies to put the internet together will get together. Um, and uh, some of the folks there were saying, you know, the implementation of modulators that are really high speed and low power has a huge impact in the power savings of our telecom and datacom equipment. And they gave out some metrics and things. And so the customer base is already seeing the potential impact of using these types of devices. And that's really exciting. I mean, that's so now. It's not a case of lightwave logic pushing its polymer technology. It's a case of lightwave logic being dragged along by the customer base saying, hey, this is really cool. We need to utilize this technology. Absolutely. What's, has there been any kind of pushback from, from the high-tech industry on you, know, you pushing along the, 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 on lightwaves uh, various technological advancements at all. I mean, I'm sure there's some folks that are trying to potentially push this down because they are worried about, you know, some of the incumbent technology now going away. So has there been? Always. There's always pushback by the techies because that's what techies do. They, they really try and, and probe, you know, strengths and weaknesses of any new technology that's been brought to market. And, you know, some of the questions, just to be honest, is people ask, well, what is the robustness of this technology? What's the reliability? Because it's polymer. And people have seen the reliability of semiconductors over the years, and they're pretty good. I mean, we know this, right? Silicon and gallium arsenide and indium phosphide, and the reliability of these materials is fine. And so the question comes up is like, is your reliability the same? Is it better? Is it worse? You know, what is it? And yes, we are doing our own robustness and reliability tests and evaluations, and we're generating data, and it all looks really great. But what I will point to is, just think about this for a second. We're all looking at organic polymer LED displays, of which when I worked on the stuff in the 1990s, it wasn't reliable, it wasn't robust, and it would die. But do we ever ask those questions about polymer products today? You know, we look at our mobile phones, we look at our, you know, portable devices, our PCs and laptop computers and TVs. We don't even question that. And that's polymer technology. And so 
yes, it can be solved. And yes, there are solutions to that. And yes, polymer technology is just as reliable as semiconductors. And you know, we are actually progressing the same route. In fact, you know, our technical advisory board, we added a couple of years ago a, a very famous professor, I believe from North Carolina State, who was instrumental in commercializing polymers for OLED displays. In fact, he was one of the guys I did research with back at Motorola, and I said, I don't see any, any, uh, any traction of this technology. I'm going to go off and do semiconductors, and he continued. So maybe I'm incorrect there, but certainly, you know, when I look at the questions that get brought up today, um, I see in this technology being just as reliable, uh, just as robust, and uh, that's why I'm really excited about it. But so why why was polymer technology so poo pooed? I mean, for for lack of a better term, <laughs> you know. Well, well, it had certainly had great performance twenty years ago, mm-hmm. but um, <clears throat> people twenty years ago, especially the telecom companies that really sort of ran ran the optical communications and the internet at that time, um, they had these things called 20 year, 20 year lifetimes. And so they were very much orientated towards super long reliability. And at that time, they chose semiconductors, even though they didn't perform as well, because they knew the reliability and it had been shown for the previous one or two decades that it was fine. And they just didn't want to take the risk. I believe this is probably part of the answer. Uh, and I also believe that you know, at that time, nobody had actually seen things like OLED televisions or OLED displays to show the polymers are robust and are reliable. But today, it's a different set of standards. It's, it's a different set of goalposts. Um, I think people have seen that polymers can be robust, can be reliable, and that question isn't asked like it was 20 years ago. Interesting. So what would you say investors get most confused about when they when they first look at Lightwave or maybe you know, after watching, hopefully they're less confused after watching an interview, this interview today. But I mean, you've done plenty of events, you've done presentations, you've done all the interviews, you know, so what, what do people still get confused about or some of your frequently asked questions? Maybe we can answer them here. Yeah, I mean, I, let, let me just go back to the OLEDs again, because I mean, people come up to me and say, oh, is your material the same as what's used in, you know, the polymers and OLEDs? And it isn't. It is a polymer but our polymers don't, don't produce light. They don't generate light when you apply a voltage. They, they switch light like a liquid crystal display. And so people get confused because once they hear the word organic or they hear the word polymer, they think all the polymers are the same, but they're not. We, we have a team of materials, chemists, organic chemists at the company and they're world-class and they're creating these materials with the right specifications needed to go into modulators that go into the internet. And so that's one question that keeps coming up time and time again. You know, what is the difference here? But there are differences. Yes, we are a polymer. We're not a semiconductor. And uh, the chemical composition is different. Um, We don't send out light. We switch light. And on that note, if you have a polymer that switches light, is a modulator for the internet the only application? And of course it isn't. It's just the one we're working on right now. I mean, there's plenty of other applications. You have to just think about where would you like to have light switched really quickly? Well, one, one, one could be, one example could be um, projection displays. Another example could be automotive and LIDAR. I mean, they're sending optical beams out and reflecting them off objects so you can detect things in front and behind the car. You can do that at even higher speed and you get better resolution, then yes, I mean, you can improve the performance of those types of systems. And so, yeah, we're, we're hearing all sorts of interesting opportunities where light can be switched quickly using polymers. And I think part of our job is to convey to the shareholders and the consumers at large the simplicity of what we have. Very good. All right, so I'm going to ask a question. I don't normally ask about this because I don't like to focus on stock price, but I mean, this is a, you know, I mean, it it was quite interesting to see, you know, back May 1st, 2021, you know, I think the ending stock price on that day was $1.72. June 1st, 2021, you're 14.45. 
Okay. That doesn't just happen very often. Um, and, and to be frank, I mean, you know, I went through the press releases of that time and I'm like, okay, you know, got the, got the receipt of the U S patent, you know, the first quarter update. Okay. You know, but you saw this, this, you know, meteoric rise. And I mean, the company hasn't fallen off that much from that either. You know, you were recording this, uh, what is today? Uh, uh, Thursday, the 20th, uh, uh, July 22nd, company's trading at, uh, uh, you know, about 10 and a half, you know, so what happened? What was it that took hold? Well, I mean, I, I don't understand the markets like anybody else, but, um, but what I can say is that in May, 2021, we had our annual shareholder meeting. And, you know, the interesting thing about our annual shareholder meetings is we don't just have one or two people turn up. We have about a hundred people plus or minus turn up from all over the world. The, these are, uh, you know, loyal shareholders that are really interested in the technology, ask really tough questions. And quite honestly, I'm proud of our shareholders. Um, and I like to be challenged by the shareholders, and it's great to see that. And in that meeting, for the first time, we get guidance about utilizing founders, silicon founders. And I know we you questioned that earlier today on the interview. And it's, it's a capital efficient move that gets us to scale without raising tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And I think that was probably part of the solution or part of the answer that, uh, um, you know, that, that gave us a lot of interest. And then also at that meeting, we really sort of talked about our patent portfolio. Now, you, you can't do a tech transfer licensing type of play if you don't have any patents. You've got to have a strong patent portfolio. And we did detail our patent portfolio at the time in the materials, the packaging, the devices, the recipes, as well as um, different types of um, material compositions that are needed to protect what we have going forward. And both you know, domestic as well as international patents. And so we did that. And I think if you put both of those together, you can see there's really strong support for a capital conservative business model that actually really is based on a combination of selling products, licensing the technology, as well as tech transferring the technology to some of these big foundry facilities that can ramp up really quickly. And that, that I think is really exciting. And I think that was really what gained a lot of interest in the company. Um, now, whether I am 100% correct or not, I don't know. But certainly those were the things that we sort of gave guidance on in the May time frame last year. And I think since then, we're seeing a lot of interest. And I think because we didn't do a reverse split when we uplisted to the NASDAQ with an organic uplist, I mean, our liquidity level is pretty high. You know, we're seeing, you know, liquidities of a million plus on a daily basis. So, I mean, that's all really exciting. I mean, I, I, these, these are metrics one likes to see in a company. And I was going to ask you, because you talked about at the beginning how the company did organic uplist, you know, without doing a reverse or or, or raising any capital. But I mean, you know, because the company is still ramping its business model, right? It's still very much a growth growth stage, right? So why didn't why didn't you why did well one why did you do the organic uplist that way, and why not raise capital in order to now execute this vision that you talked about at the AGM? Did you need to? No, we didn't need to raise capital. In fact, we have enough cash to last us into the early part of 2023. Um, so from a finance standpoint, you know, we don't have any loans. And so we're, we're in a strong financial position. We're very conservative. You know, we, we watch our burn rate really carefully. Um, we hire world-class people. We've got a few wrecks out there today and we're interviewing folks as we speak. You know, we set the bar really high for folks to come into the company. Um, but I think doing the organic uplist really started in 2017 when one of our loyal shareholders at the end of my management update to the shareholder meeting said to me, so well, when are you going to go to NASDAQ? I mean, why can't you guys go to NASDAQ? I mean, why can't you do a reverse split and get to NASDAQ? I mean, why, why are you just hanging around on the OTC? And my response at the time was, and I was just started as CEO in 2017, it's like, I want to progress our technology platform 
and our solutions so that we can do an organic uplift. So we don't have to do reverse split. We don't have to raise any money. So how do we do that? Well, we've got to really generate a lot of interest in what we're doing. We've got to progress a technology platform and mature it. And when we're ready, we're going to do it. Well, it took a little bit of a long time. It took about four years to do it, but it's such a rare occurrence. I'm actually quite proud that we actually did it. I mean, it's it's something that's like, yeah, this this makes us feel really good, makes us feel that we're heading in the right direction. There's a lot of support. Um, the vectors on the business and the technology front seem to be all pointing in the right direction. Um, we've managed the company really efficiently and the business plan supports that. So I think when you add everything up, why rush to uplist um, and you know dilute the investor's level of ownership and raise money when you don't need to. Got it. And well, I mean, and to be fair, you did a financing ad in October before. So, I mean, you already did the financing. You already, you already had the cash, right? Correct. Yeah. So why raise more cash? Well, you can always raise more cash on the NASDAQ. And certainly that, that option is always available. And so, you know, we review these types of situations, you know, on a, on a monthly basis. And so, what we want to make sure is that we have the resources in place to execute what we want to do. And it's not just making electro-optic polymer modulators. It's actually making them ubiquitous. And that's the word ubiquitous. I want the stuff everywhere. I'm just curious. How come you did it? I don't know. It's still, I'm still trying to figure it out because I, I you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm just curious. Like, why, why did you do the, because fi- did you do the financing? Wait, hold on. Did you do the financing before or after the, it was, it was before, right? Before the uplist or no? Robert, well, I don't recall exactly. Okay, but, so. um, I, don't, I don't actually recall all the dates, but certainly as we did the uplist, we were in a position that we didn't have to raise money. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I see. So on the 7th, yeah. So on October 7th, 2021, you announced the $33 million financing agreement with Lincoln Park. And and you and I, I guess you were on NASDAQ at that time already. So, yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's, uh, we, we put a shelf in place uh, mid last year, I think. I think that was in July. Um, so, yeah, it was, okay. I don't, re- I don't remember all the dates exactly, but yeah, certainly, um, we, we didn't feel that we needed to raise the money. Let's, let's put it that way. So another question that I have for you is, I mean, you know, we talked about, you know, things that investors get the most confused about some of the frequently asked questions and, you know, going through some of the, the, you know, uplisting, all that kind of stuff. But in your opinion, from a business perspective, and I ask every company on here, this question, you know, what would you say are the company's downside risks? Well, I think the downside risks is, is not being able to make this technology ubiquitous. I mean, sure, we've got electro-optic polymers. We know the performance. We have a lots of interested parties in our technology. And it's okay to develop a technology and you know keep a few customers happy. But that's not what we really want to do. What we really want to do is to have it everywhere. So the challenge is, is how do you get a technology that actually a simple way of looking at it, that enriches everybody's lives. And so that's why I keep using the term ubiquitous. We want to be able to enable faster data to be communicated on the internet. We don't want people to have bandwidth problems. We want that to be a solution that's out there. And if people, I guess, if they want to pay more money, they can get faster bandwidth. Um, I want to see the technology as ubiquitous as OLEDs. And so it's not just a business plan to be successful making really cool, you know, high-performing electro-optic polymers uh, or optical switches. But I, I want to be in a position to say, yeah, it's everywhere. That's the thing. And I think the downside risk is, is like, I don't want it to be a, a niche play. I want it to be everywhere. And so as we work through our business plan and our technology strategy and our business strategy, you know, we're thinking, how do you make it ubiquitous everywhere all the time? And this is why we, we've engaged with foundries. Um, and we'll look at different types of partners that we think are appropriate to scale the technology quickly and efficiently. And so those are the downside risks I think about on a daily basis. 
And, and from what you can tell us, you know, I mean, have you started to see that kind of momentum enacting that strategy in order to hopefully limit some of the execution risk? Yeah, since, um, I mean, the interesting thing, I talked about this OFC conference back in March. That was when essentially the gloves, the gloves came off and the customer base was saying publicly, we need this stuff. We need modulators to go higher speed. We need modulators to go you know, lower power consumption. Whereas before, we heard this over a year ago, but it wasn't public. I mean, you know, you're in conversations with folks and they're under NDA. You can't really talk about it too much. You can talk about it generically, but now it's public. And everybody knows that this is a critical technology that is actually needed as we look forward. And the interesting thing here is it's not a technology for next generation modulators or the generation after that. The performance headroom in this type of technology is so vast. It can go at least a decade, if not two decades. And so we're looking at a technology platform that's going to be around just like you would expect OLEDs and TV displays to be around. Got it. I mean, one more question on competition. I know I bounced around a little bit, but I, I have to ask, I mean, is there are there other polymer technology developers right now that have kind of the same mindset? Because it's almost like a race to being the ubiquitous, it sounds like. Well, yeah, when folks get nervous and they get envious because you're getting a lot of exposure and you're doing well, they're going to jump in. And so, yeah, we're seeing a lot more interest in electro-optic polymers from universities and folks like that. So university-level uh, facilities, you know, coming up with different materials. Um, we're seeing a lot more interest in major conferences um, that come up and ask me questions about the technology and they want to like get their hands on the technology and they're really excited about the technology because people also see that, you know, they see the Achilles heel, the Achilles heels, if you like, of power consumption and high speed in the, in the data comm internet environment. And they're looking for technology solutions to do that. So yes, competition is going to get more fierce. Uh, we expect it to be so over the next couple of years, but we have a head start. We have a good patent portfolio, and I think we have a great plan to put it into action. Absolutely. Well, this actually ties into my next question a little bit, and you kind of kind of alluded to this already a little bit with the idea that you want the company to be, you know, everywhere and ubiquitous and whatnot. <laughs> you know, but but you know, it, it, if from what you can tell us, you know, where do you see the company in three to five years, and what would you say are some of the inflection points that will get you to that point? So where I see the company in three to five years is um, having the technology start its, uh, its path to becoming ubiquitous, going everywhere, not only in the internet applications, but also in things like display, sensing, and automotive. So I'd expect to see these types of electro-optic polymers in those types of market verticals. So not only you know, the datacom, telecom, that is, you know, the, in essence, the part of the internet today, but in other market verticals too. And I think that would be really, really exciting. And that's following the same sort of path as OLEDs. And so, um, yeah, from that standpoint, I think that's going to be really exciting. And I think one of the big inflection points is, is a successful partnership with a number of founders. And the reason I'm saying that is because those are the facilities that ramp volume. I mean, that's, that's their business. So all they want to do is run wafers. And so a successful interaction with the foundries will enable us to you know, develop our material, our unique, unique material in Colorado, and then um, have the foundries port the recipes, run the recipes, and be able to offer our technology either from a licensing standpoint or a tech transfer standpoint. And I think that's going to be one of the big inflection points that both we are looking at as well as a lot of our shareholders are looking at too. Very good. You know, you mentioned also that, um, you know, you have a lot of respect for your shareholder base and, you know, you love being challenged and fielding questions, but I mean, have, how much, if at all, have your shareholders influenced any of your, any of your decision-making process? Well, they keep me on my toes. I mean, I get emails and I get uh, messages from shareholders all the time, and they ask really tough questions. And while I can't answer the questions because that maybe goes beyond guidance, and obviously there's a line there, but some of the questions they raise make you as a person leading the company really think carefully 
that are you really doing the right things? And it's all it's always good to be questioned. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I've surrounded myself and the company with, you know, for example, a technical advisory board, which is sort of unusual for public companies. But you know, we've put technical experts that have been in the commercial space and have been super successful uh, around the team to make sure that you know we're barking up the right tree. I don't want to go off in the wrong direction. I don't want to make a mistake. I want to make sure this happens and this happens efficiently. And so surrounding yourself with the best technical and business minds is something that I think I'm proud of and I think the company's proud of right now. Very good. All right. So my final question for you today, uh, and this I, I like to close this out with everybody, you know, uh, how has your experience been being a public company CEO? Have you enjoyed it? Has it been more difficult than you thought it might be? Has it met your expectations? You know, love to hear that. It's It's been a blast. Um, it's different than running a private company. Running a private company is different. You don't have the fine line in the sand where you can provide or not provide guidance. And being a public company CEO, you really have to know that line where you you don't want to say anything that's beyond guidance, but you want to keep below that line. Otherwise, you have to start issuing 8Ks and things like that. And in the past, I've done, um, you you can look at my history, I've been an expert witness. I've done depositions. Now, if you're doing a deposition in court, um, then you know about what things you can say and what things you can't say. And you have to be very careful about uh, adhering to the guidelines. And I think that type of experience combined with my business and technical background has provided a really good platform for being a public company CEO. And so from that standpoint, that has been really surprising. I didn't really sort of realize that the guidance part of the job until I took it on. But now I take it on, it's great because, you know, shareholders, investors, potential investors say, well, when are you going to do this? When are you going to do that? And you know exactly what you can and cannot say. And I think from that standpoint, that's actually been really fun and I enjoy it and things are going really well. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think we covered quite a bit. I'm sure we'll still, I'm sure there's things that we probably didn't cover that hopefully, you know, they, they don't uh, come for me, <laughs> that we did. but uh, we'll, we'll definitely do, do another one at some point, I'm sure soon. So, so, so Dr. Levy, where can our audience go and find more information on Lightwave Logic? Uh, you can find it at our website at www.lightwavelogic.com and always look for the sign because I'm around. Absolutely. All right. Well, Dr. Levy, thank you so much for joining me today. Really do appreciate it. Good luck. Stay safe and uh, look forward to our next update. Hey, thank you very much. Appreciate it. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not provided as financial, legal, or any other advice. The information is not investment advice or an offer to buy or sell any securities or make any investment. The views expressed by guest speakers are their own and any reference to third-party products, services, or information does not constitute an endorsement thereof by SNN or its affiliates. SNN expressly disclaims all liability for any individual's use of the information presented in this podcast.